So I think I could become, based on trajectory, if my handicap keeps going up, I could be the world's greatest five handicap golfer. Um, <laughs> there we go, everyone. I don't you heard it like here first. Punchy. I don't feel like there's any justice. Watch this. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Cookie Jar Golf Podcast. Bruce is joined me today. Bruce, how the devil are you? Good morning. Yeah, early morning podcast. Uh, bit of a rarity for us, but here we are, ready to go. It, it's, it's been a few weeks since we've been to Raw North Devon. Um, mm. We haven't been able to find a bit of time yet to sit down and chew the cud properly, but I thought we'd spend 15, 20 minutes talking about the event, the course, the people, yeah. the ambience, and then we've got a little sort of 40 minute discussion with Robert Fowler, who's the club's archivist, who's uh, he's a really cool guy. He wrote the history book on Royal North Devon. Really enjoyed sitting there and doing a pod with him um, before going out. And sh- yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so we'll we'll kind of cut to him. But I just kind of wanted to kind of put a brief cover note on this pod and 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 probably a bit of us chatting about the course. Bruce, you've been down there quite a bit over the last few years. Is that fair to say? Because it was a first time hit yeah. for me. Yeah, no, this year was my third time going down there. So I, I first went down in 2019. Um, shout out to, to a friend of the pod, Piers Parnell, who invited uh, Harry and I to go down. And basically, I think the, the last week in August, that week that finishes with the bank holiday weekend, is a bit of a golfing bonanza, really, down at Raw North Devon. Um, so I guess it's almost like their annual meeting for, for want of a better word, where they have a huge amount of competitive golf throughout the week. Um, and it's on like the a whole Friday, week of medals, isn't it? The whole thing. Yeah. Like- they're not just medals. There's, there's a bit of, you know, I think there's like maybe a scramble or a four ball, better ball competition in there as well. And they've got some handicap stuff too. There's some match play as well as stroke as, as well as stroke play. But, um, on the Friday you have the club silver medal, which as far as I'm aware, I think that is the oldest, club honours board in English golf or it might even be UK golf but um you know stretching stretching a, a long way back there and that's that's something that I've had the opportunity to play in a couple of times and then on the Saturday you've got the scratch um cashmere cup which is yeah 36 hole scratch medal off the black tees which they um, never use apart from that one time of the year yeah. Yeah, like they're, yeah, they're in the middle of nowhere, aren't they? They're 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 pretty unique. And then and then yeah, on the Sunday, um, there's the a match between the Oxford and Cambridge Golf Society and uh, the club. So so yeah, Piers was was uh, kind kindly invited us to go and play in that back in 2019, and loved it so much. We've been back a couple of times since. Um, didn't go in 2020 because because of, of the dreaded sea. But um, it's just a, it's just an amazing place, and I mean, it was your first time there, Sam, wasn't it? So um, yeah, it's great. I mean, it, I, I really enjoyed it. What I mean, look, the the conversation with with Robert that we're going to cut to in a bit covers a load of the history stuff, and mm. you know, you talk about the honors boards there. When you see Horace Hutchinson with about eight or nine ditto marks below him yeah. year on year, where he's just won the same thing, um, and obviously you see things like Taylor's Locker and the whole history around that as the kind of first English golf club. It's pretty amazing to see what a great job they've done in preserving it all really. Um, but mm-hmm. one thing that going into it, if I'm being brutally honest, is, you know, it's going to be a Marmite course. Some people absolutely yeah. love it and others absolutely hate it. <laughs> and where I'm just you, being really honest. Yeah. Where do you sort of stand on that, on that spectrum? Cause I mean, I, I really, you know, I really love the place. Yeah. I, I came where I really love the place. I, yeah. I can see, I, the, I suppose some of this issue is sometimes the, the, the naive visiting golfer might go into it expecting, um, you know, raw Birkdale, huge towering dunes and kind of dramatic golf holes. You don't really have that much of it. You've got some spectacular golf holes, don't get me wrong. Mm. And some of the architecture, I think, particularly on those sort of outward 10 are really, really strong. There's some really, really good golf holes there. But, you know, it's a really flat piece of land. So when you get out of the car, you look at it and go, crikey, there's 18 holes out there, are there? Because all yeah. you can see is one and 18. And then yeah. it all just sort of disappears into the horizon, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's um, I, I think it's just great fun because, you know, it's the oldest course in England, really. It's the cradle of English golf. And 
um, yeah, as you say, when you, when you go there, you can see one and 18 and as you work your way out, you, it's actually very, very playable and, and extremely generous off the tee. I think the 13th hole might be the widest fairway in golf or the widest sort of landing area in golf is other than a couple you can of go bushes anywhere, here and there. Can't you? you can pretty, go, pretty much go anywhere, but, um, you know, when the wind blows down there and, uh, you know, it gets a little bit firmer, um, the green starts to get a bit shiny. I think personally, it's a, it's a bloody difficult test of golf. And I think one of the things that keeps me coming back aside from how brilliant and welcoming the club is, which is something that we'll, we'll get onto in a moment. And the course is, is, is great fun as well. There's almost like this sort of sadistic obsession I have with the ability that, that you know, with the fact that I've not, I don't feel like I've played or scored all that well around there in the three years I've been going. And yet it just sort of seems like it should be a course. You should be able to put a, put a bit of a score together. Yeah, and it around. lures you back, doesn't um, it? And I think yeah. that's the feeling. Like I drove away from it thinking, I really want to get back down there again because I feel like I could play it differently. So therefore, you know, that isn't, you know, I hit the ball okay. But if I'd have made different decisions out there, I would have played a lot better in the event. And I think that's the essence of a really good course. You touched on 13. That's actually one of the standout holes for me, yeah. which is this ridiculously wide par five that kind of, it, it gradually climbs. It's not like a big uphill or anything, is it? But it sort mm. of gradually works its way back slightly uphill. Um, it's not particularly long. I think it's like 480, 490 or something off the yeah. whites. It's like a sort of a mid-length par five. And you could take a run at it with the driver, couldn't you? Like it really, you know, you could hit it pretty much anywhere. Mm. But then the the complexity around the green and where you put your second shot in relation to where the pin is on that green is everything. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You described it beautifully there. It's, you know, it's a short par five, really, I think, by today's standards. And if you get a win, bit of wind behind, or even if you leave it in the sort of semi-rough, you know, you, you can get a bit of a flyer and, and chase something up there. Um but the green is so severely tilted from front to back and almost left to right. And it's just so sharp, like the runoff area. People talk about upturned sources, but this no, is it's, it's mental, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. This is the steepest source I've ever seen. It's um, not particularly high, but there's like, I would say six or seven, six feet of elevation, maybe, yeah, maybe five or six feet of elevation, but it's mm -hmm. probably at about a 70 degree angle, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and if that pins over on the right hand side, and you, you know, you miss it, it's 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 fine margins because if you miss it just slightly on the right, well, then you just put it up the slope. You're kind of at the bottom of the tier. That that's fine. If you're further right, so you're 10, 20 yards right of the, the pin, then you are really in a difficult spot. Yeah. And then if you're left of the if you're left of the green when the pin's over on the right, I mean, there's some rushes over there that if you get an unfortunate bounce with your approach shot, you could be kind of pretty close pretty close to those or even find yourself in, in one of those, which is obviously not a good spot to be. Um, and even if you do have a shot to the green from the left, there's just like such a like low chance you're able to keep it on the green because it's kind of running away from you. So um, yeah, I mean, I think over the years in, in the Kashmir cut, many people have, have, have come undone <laughs> around that green complex, even though you look at it and you think this should just be a pretty straightforward birdie. Um, mm. it, it's nothing. It's just not even close to that. You touched on the rushes there. Be remiss to not talk about mm. the course and not talk about those rushes. I've never seen that vegetation anywhere. They're like, they're not like, it's not like sort of heavy, sort of thick rushes. This stuff is like barbed wire, yeah. isn't it? It's so insanely heavy. If your ball goes anywhere near it, there is no way you can play out of it. It's essentially, it might as well be a localized water hazard, really, except if yeah. you hit it off the tee, you're going to have to go back. You know, it's mental. I think Harry was saying one year someone put their hand into the rushes and then got their finger sort of stuck into one of the sharp blades of the rush. And yeah, then ended up losing dagger, yeah. their finger like three days later, it got infected. And then like, yeah. it's, it's seriously penal stuff. In every yeah, sense I'm not sure how much of an apocryphal story that is. Just to, <laughs> just to truth, get away with people against. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, there, there are plenty of people out there. I'd count myself one of them who almost just have an obsession with trying to find a golf ball. Um, and yeah, you know, that's probably a deterrent if 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 you are a little bit too eager and you see a ball in a rush or you want to just go fishing for for a ball and if you think it's landed in a particular rush out there and and yeah, you could you could really come a cropper if you uh, if you manage to skewer your finger on one. Um, but they are pretty unique. I can't think of many it's other odd, places yeah. really where, where I've seen them. But 
Um, of course, you know, a bit of the background at, at, at Raw North Devon at Westwood Ho is that it is um, council-owned land, really. So the club, as far as I'm aware, can't take out those rushes because um, whether it's the environmental legislation or requiring uh, another form of consent from the local authority, they're, they're, they're not able to move them. So um, they're a defining feature, really. They're, they're there to stay. There's no plans to to move any of them a, a, a around, um, even where... You know, the carries on a few holes, certainly for some of the, the, the sort of older members of the club, actually quite quite daunting. I think um, I think 10, but 11 in particular is actually quite an intimidating tee shot because, as you say, the, because of the re- relatively level topography at Royal North Devon, the tee box isn't particularly elevated there and you're just looking out at a sea of rushes and you can, can't really see the fairway. You can't see anything. Um, and that, and the thing is, you've played nine holes or so, which are relatively open off the tee, haven't you? Yeah. Okay, there's holes like seven, we can maybe come back to that, but you've got holes like, but by and large, it's pretty generous off the tee. And yeah. then you get on 10 and you're like, oh God, this feels claustrophobic because all the rushes are in and you've got to just find the right portion. Dog leg, and then yeah. 11, you sort of, like you say, you almost summit over those rushes. And first time I played it, it's like, you know, that scene in Indiana Jones, um, you know, the last crusade where he has to sort of put his right foot out and he throws the sand down and sees there's, and the sand stays there. And it's like a leap of faith that there's a bridge there. That's how I felt hitting that five iron the first time I played it. It's like, I'm fairly sure there's a fairway over mm. there, but I've got absolutely nothing to back that up. Yeah, 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 and it's yeah. like, it really is. And it's and I mean, I think, a house on the hill, but there's actually yeah. a few of them. So you're like, oh, I don't know if I've picked the right one there. I was looking at this chimney and now that I've yeah. looked back at the ball, I'm like, oh, there's a bit of doubt kind of creeping it's in. So in actually, your head. the more you play it, you kind of realize that um, a shot that's going between sort of 230 and 260 actually gives you about 65 yards of fairway to play with. If you're yeah. trying to poke something down there, 200, 210, you're kind of playing into a 40 yard fairway. That's exactly um, what I did. And then I, I, I ended up dropping clubs every time yeah. I played it. And then I think in the, I think in the morning on the Saturday or whatever, and it was like, I think it took me, I think it took me three blows to get off the tee, which was, which was not particularly helpful to a medal <laughs> score. It wasn't constructive. Um, yeah. Can but we talk about the, um, yeah, 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 definitely. Can we talk about the, what you see as maybe the magic stretch of the course? I've got a, a little stretch of holes in mind. Right. Okay. Well, I'd be interested to know what, yeah, what your stretch of holes is. Personally, I think the, that, that front nine really builds. And as you go down the, uh, I'm going to say, is it the fifth, the par, par three? Mm. Um, yeah. That's a pretty cool climb up that that hole it's um you know elevated green pin quite often at the front you can leave yourself some smelly putts there and then, you know <laughs> and it's it's it, and it's falling off all all sides so um that that for me is just a, it's just a great hole as, as you sum it onto that that fifth green and then you tee off down six i think six is another fantastic hole where it's pretty Incredible. generous off the tee but you want to get yourself pretty far down there because the, the second shot can be a little bit tricky if you've got some wind to contend with um that's exactly where i would put the magic stretch four five six yeah Yeah. because you've got i mean five is just an all-world par three isn't it Mm. it really is like the bunkering elevated shot six like you say is so strategic in terms of where you're trying to put your tee shot you can just tap a four iron down there but you're going to have to lean on a lot of club to a really tricky little green with all that Mm. mounding on the left Whereas really you want to push your drive kind of down to the 10th green almost. The further yeah. you get down towards that, it actually opens up a better shot where you can play up the up the bank slightly. More of a backstop, um, yeah. But four with that kind of sleeper face bunkering, which is kind of irrelevant today. So four is that, you know, anyone who's seen pictures of Raw North Devon will have seen, you know, the huge dramatic vertical sleeper face bunkering with the arrows on, you know, and it's a, it's an iconic feature of the golf course. That I think was the largest bunker in in golf for a period of time, um, but now today the hazard's slightly irrelevant because the the chances are most players are going to cover a one sixty yard carry. You'd think, mm-hmm. um, but I can imagine back in the day of Hutchinson and Taylor when. I mean, granted, those guys were ball strikers, but with hickory equipment, that thing would have been absolutely fearsome. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just think that whole little stretch, you know, fours, even when you summit those, that bunker, 
the mounding and the rippling on the fairway and the and the green side itself is just just class like it's just there's so much going for it on that little stretch that um yeah i was i was huge fan but then three's good seven is a hole yeah. they talk about a lot did you play seven before the change i did yes the first time i went down in 2019 um i don't know if that was the last year that, that seven was was played in in the older configuration it used to be um a par four where you basically hit over the rushes that are now on the left side of the fairway. You kind of drive and then hit over those for your second shot. Um, and then that would, that would leave you up kind of by the eighth tee. And then, then you kind of carry on the eighth as it was the, the, the longer par three. Um, but that's now changed. So, I mean, Royal North Devon changed quite a bit over the year years and um, it is affected by, by coastal erosion and that mm. receding, um, yeah, the, the the receding coastline, I guess, if that's the right expression. Um, so they've rebuilt seven. That is a, a pretty new hole. I think it's only a couple of years old now. Um, and in, into a longer par five, they've done some new bunkering there, which is which is great. Um, and it's just a yeah, it's a slightly slightly different hole, really. Yeah, totally um, different. Seems in, to be like the, the favourite topic of the members to talk about because they seem to love seven with mm. that kind of ninety degree angle. Yeah, you can still kind of see where the green site would be. It's all blown out by sand and it's all been weathered away now. But you know, the par five that steps in its place is—it's a bit of a brute actually. It's a really tricky tee shot to try and get yourself right down there. Mm. Um, yeah, you want to avoid the the deep bunker. Give yourself a second shot to the green. Um, but yeah, I think I think it's a great sort of risk reward hole. Really, again, there's a there's a lot on the set, second shot on where you you miss it because although it's quite generous up by the green, you can just make an absolute fool of yourself, um, like like I did in the second round, <laughs> where you're sort of chipping off off a kind of slightly crusty lie to a green that's above you with the slope sort of running away from you, and all of a sudden you kind of walk walk off with a stick, thinking, "What on earth have I done there? I was pin high into." 40 feet away from the flag. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Made yeah. Big yeah. zero of it. Um, eight is another hole, which I understand is going to change to. Um, that is a, a great part three currently. Um, really understated yeah. golf hole, isn't it? But it's yeah. a brilliant part three. Yeah. Yeah. With some great bunkering that kind of, you've got to sort of channel a shot in between the bunkers or, or, or fly one most of the way there. Um, but it's about a 200, 210 yard shot, I think. Um, but sadly that, that green is also going to be affected by the coastal erosion. So they're putting in a new par three, which actually went up and had a, had a quick look at it. Um, Cause that's starting to bed in now. And I understand they've kind of played a couple of, they played it, played it a couple of times this year. Um, so it'll be interesting to, to get back there. It might be in play, might be fully in play next time. Um, you know, if we're able to go down for the, for the autumn meeting there or the, the, the silver medal in the cash makeup next year. Um, be interesting to see how that plays. Mm. Then in terms of the clubhouse atmosphere, because I mean, we're going to cut to, to, to Robbie in a bit. who's going to talk about, about the history, but um, I would say there's a unique sort of feeling in the air, very different to pretty much any other golf club you go, the clubhouse. Mm. It's almost like it's just an uber relaxed atmosphere, isn't it? And I think the club's so much better, <clears throat> you know, I've sort of read articles, you know, kicking around there's always someone saying you know what we should be doing with dress code what we should be doing with standards how everything needs to be relaxed i'm not sure that's quite right but in the case of raw north devon it feels like the club is part of the identity is the relaxed atmosphere that you get there yeah. the fact that you can just kind of kick around in shorts and flip-flops and enjoy yourself and and the whole thing has just a very nice social edge to it i think um yeah definitely you know i um I think that it's, it's it's funny, isn't it? Because that is a club that is the cradle of English golf and has probably more of a right than, than, than most clubs in England to kind of insist on maybe an adherence to certain tr traditions or dress code. Um, and yeah, it's just so, so relaxed. There's no airs and graces there. It's, it's a thoroughly welcoming um, club. I mean, yeah, you and I, we, I think we love long socks, foursomes, golf, jacket and tie more than most in golf. Um, but actually, you know, going down to, to rural North Devon and, and, and seeing how relaxed it is, it's such a, it's quite, you know, refreshing change of pace, actually, I think. Going, it's going there. potent, isn't it? Yeah, it's yeah. like, it's nice when everything's different. You know, it's it's like, you know, might even be writing a, a little piece on the topic of long socks, actually. But um, <laughs> <laughs> the uh, for another large media outlet, who interestingly I did play golf with that day. Um, but, 
Yeah, I, I think it's the potency of going somewhere where it has a very distinct personality in the clubhouse, mm. and that just makes everything so much better. Um, you know, the fact that you go into the clubhouse and there's all the history there, and you go to the bar and they've got like a little free port thing. So mm. there's a there's a bottle of port turned upside down, which is completely free of charge, and you can help yourself. But if you have the last if you have the last measure in the port bottle you have to buy another bottle and it's just these little charming things that are quite cool then you order your food around the side at the little sort of side entrance to the kitchen yeah, yeah, yeah. and the portions come out and again they're just frankly ridiculous you know i think i had the most calorific chicken wrap that's ever been known good, to though, man at one point yeah it's, it's, it's awesome wrap. um so no I, I i thought it was really cool hugely enjoyable um golf was mixed like i but i don't think the fact that i hit the ball reasonably good but scored completely differently on all the all the three rounds for me was the biggest lure in coming back um i couldn't i couldn't let that's us your talk game about... at the moment though isn't it you're just absolutely ripping yeah. it at the moment just thinking why can't i score so i've got i always have these little sound bites i think i could become based on trajectory if my handicap keeps going up i could be the world's greatest five handicap golfer um, <laughs> there we go everyone. you heard like it here first punchy I don't feel like there's any justice no i'm joking well it's weird because I, I scored crap on on the Friday and the Saturday morning. And then I played with Dan Davies, founder and, and, and course architect at RNGC, who people will know from our, our film and our course diaries podcast. If you haven't checked that out, please do. Um, and I played with Mike Harris, who's the editor at golf monthly, really nice guy. So much fun. Mm. Like I, you know, couldn't have enjoyed his company anymore. We had just a brilliant 36 whole day. Um, the day before I played with Dale and Hugo again, you know, fantastic company from start to finish. Um, but after the morning round on the 36 hole, we, you know, there's this sort of shabbly time that they seem to be quite fond of there, which is yeah. seemingly you've got, you've got about 50 minutes for lunch and it's like a race to see how many bottles of shabbly you can kind of empty before you go back out in the afternoon, which is all well and good, but it was bloody hot. And actually I think a bit of water would have been a bit better, um, going into the, into the afternoon round. I think I'd got myself slightly dehydrated. Luckily, John Davey from Sounder, um, didn't want to play the Kashmir cup, had gone surfing in the morning down at Appledore and he'd had a nice time. Moseyed on up to the golf club and said, Oh, I'll jump on the bag, which got me really in the mood for it. Yeah, then. So amazing. What me and him was sort of, I was just throwing nauseating caddy chat with him all afternoon, you know, about three finger, six irons and, you know, love that play and all that kind of jazz. But John got me round. And it's weird, like, yeah, you know, just just played the course slightly differently, didn't hit it any better and scored about seven or eight better. You know, it was like, it was one of those rounds where I actually got a ton out of it mm. um, just by making better decisions, which, you know, kind of as we kick this little discussion off is, I think, the essence of a great golf course. So um, yeah. any other closing remarks before we cut over to Robert? No. No, I think, um, you know, you've capped off what was a was truly excellent few days there. And, um, you know, being with so many kind of like-minded people and close friends in golf, this big sort of jamboree down there in, in, um, in Westwood Ho, it was just a, it was a terrific few days. And I think you kind of summed up nicely there with the fact that, that JD hopped on the bag and, um, you're able to have a bit of fun. He went and got ice creams for us on three. Yeah. So third tee went over. There's an ice cream van where they're doing surfing. So he went over and gets gets me, Mike, and Dan himself a little ninety nine with a flake. That was yeah, that was absolutely delightful. And then um, and then you tee off four, and there's a visitors hut on the beach. So he goes in there and then goes and scores us four free beers as well, which was just uh, which was just just impeccable caddying. I mean, it really mm -hmm. was. Um, before I, one thing I do want to say before we close is all of those things that we've talked about there, they're open competitions. So whilst they're really significant events in the club's calendar and their honours boards, what I think is brilliant is that they run them as open competitions. So, mm. you know, people can just literally go on BRS through the club's website and get those booked. And, and I would hugely encourage people to go and do that for next year. I will definitely be going back. It sounds like you will be too. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was great. Yeah. Well, without further ado, it's over to, to Robert, and uh, yeah, we hope you enjoy this part. It's uh, it's a really interesting chat. Um, yeah, loads of little nuggets in there, and uh, yeah, over to Robert. Watch this. No 
Rob, Robert, Robbie. What, what, what what's the preferred? Uh, Robbie probably is uh, what I'm better known as. To be fair. Teeth on mic, we always say. You've got to get it right there, like a sort of football commentator. All oh, right, yeah, um, yeah. Robbie. Yeah, Robbie, Robbie yeah, yeah. Uh, that's probably best what I'm known as, yeah, because of Robbie Fowler, really. Obviously, of course, you footballing know. footballing icon. Yeah, player. I wish I was him. But you're not a Liverpudlian, so you've been no, a member no. here since you were knee high to a grasshopper. I was born in the house I live in, yeah. No way. Yeah. But how old I, are you I, now? I'm 75. It's a big, big number, isn't it? It's a big number. Bloody hell. <laughs> 70 years in the same place. Yeah. No, no, no. I've been away. Bright lights, Birmingham, London. Okay. Yeah. Travelled around and stuff. <laughs> well, <laughs> in a manner of uh, speaking, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. So, obviously, we're here to talk about RND, Raw North Devon, Westwood Ho. How yeah. do you refer to it? Do you call it Westwood, Westwood Ho? Westwood Ho. I, I do. I call it Westwood Ho. You know, uh, it was always, well... And even, well, people call it R-N-D. You know, it's been shortened to R-N-D. So I think most people know it as R-N-D, not Westwood O. Okay. But, but you yeah. like, do you like the old I like Westwood O, yeah. That's how yeah. Darwin and everyone else used to. Yes, they did, actually, right? yeah. It was always yeah. known as. Westwood O, yeah, yeah. Well, it's my first visit. So I'm, we're recording this on, what, the 26th of August, playing in the silver medal today, yeah. and then the Kashmir Cup. Now I'm, I'm sat here, I'm looking out on a, huge expanse of relatively flat linksland um which is kind of how it's been built to me as you get here and actually the course itself is quite flat i've yeah. never actually played here at all right You're i'm aware that i'm playing for a piece of golfing history this afternoon you are indeed you are yeah club silver meadow 18, tell me about that 1864 which would make that what the oldest medal in english golf oh unlikely i think blackie's probably have got um some older ones because uh, because we're like the third oldest, I think. There was uh, Blackheath, then Old Manchester. There was a course at Brighton, but then it is us. I think we're like, to be honest, I think we're the second oldest now after Blackheath in England. But the um, only the oldest that's still standing on its current site, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we have moved the course a little bit, you know, when we put the clubhouse up in 1888. Be- before that, it was all out there. Um, just under the ridge, really. This is Pebble Ridge, isn't it? Which Pebble we'll ridge. come on to. Pebble Ridge, yeah. And yeah. we should we should do a proper introduction. So your, say, role at Rawlins Devon or Westwood Howe, as a long-standing member, you've I get the sense you've done all number of things here. I've heard you mention secretary. I've heard you, obviously, you've written the beautiful club's history, which we've got um, in front of us. Hundred fiftieth, yeah. President twice. President twice, but it was only because the boy was poorly, and I did take it over in twenty sixteen. Yeah, I was a secretary uh, 1997 to 2010. Uh, time to go. You recognise yourself by day, really. Um, yeah, I was a boy member of the Artisans back in 1958. Been playing since 1952. Um, yeah, I, w- I got a few uh, honours. I'm on the honours boards uh, here and there. So, yeah, I've done all right. Well, so it's a special place for you. How it would is. you describe... Um, Westwood High to, to somebody who's never been here before how would you how would you kind of bring it to life because I'm yet to experience it in its fullest but I think yeah well clearly you have to uh, play it to appreciate it or not appreciate it I think broadly people come here they play well they love it if they play badly which is easily done I think they hate it you know <laughs> there is that love hate sort of situation Um yeah, but well, I love it. It's, uh, f- to me, it's a Ferrari of golf courses. Mm. You know, well, but there's there's so much history. I mean, it really is the cradle of English golf, right? I think there needs to be some sort of appreciation for, you know, its role in the evolution of the sport, really, in this country. Yeah, I think because we're out of the way a little bit, we underhit on our history, and, and people don't really take in how old we are. You know. Um, but that's just a personal thing, you know, that I think we do under hit on our history. Mm. Do you think the sport's maybe a bit quick to run away from some of the great history and traditions that we've got, almost? Not sure, really. I mean... Because like you said, there's there's so much brilliant history. I mean, I mean the, I've only been in the clubhouse, so, you know, very briefly to order a... Very calorific, I will add. Chicken wrap, <laughs> extremely calorific. <laughs> good boy, uh, good boy. Guinness. That's and good. 
the history on the walls there is unbelievable. I mean, it's it's kind of museum forward slash clubhouse, yeah. isn't it? Really. Yeah. But even with the museum, we under hit really, you know, because a lot of the clubs, you know, although they look great, you know, the, the reality is they ain't they ain't that great to be honest. But I'm not demeaning it. It is, mm. you know, it is pretty historic in there. So you you joined the club in 1958. Is that right? I did as a boy member of the Artisans, but then... Uh, and that's a separate club that shares was, the links yeah, here at the was, time? It was a separate club, yeah, Northern Artisans. Like, Artisan is a Victorian term, is it? Mm. And it, where you work with your hands, that was the terminology back in the day. Um, but gradually, the Artisans have actually... They've, been, they've acted as a feeder club for the main club, and now I think they've wrapped all together. I think they've been incorporated into the main club. But back when I, I was the sector of the artisans in, and in ni- uh, 1990, we had 120 members. Wow, right, so, okay. So artisan golf has really fallen off the it edge has. of the cliff, really, to be honest. Which is strange, really. Well, I don't know how close you are to the rest of the sort of artisan clubs dotted around the UK, but... There's quite a few still there, but I do sense that maybe there's not that many people joining it for whatever reason, which is strange because it's quite a, well, it's a well, really it's, cool it's, golf it's, scene it's, in its own right. Yeah, it's pretty much cheap golf, I think. You know, yeah. you've got to do a few chores on the golf course and, and this and that. But yeah, I don't know. I knew ours had died. I, I don't think there's an artisan club in Devon now, whereas there used to be... Well, I'm talking about 30, 35 years ago, there's probably five, six artisan clubs. So it, really? it has fallen off the cliff, really, yeah. I mean, I think people aspire to be a member of the real club, if you like, you know, because with all the kudos that brings up, sure. you know. But, yeah. But, I mean, since 1958, we're talking approximately a third of the club's history. How have you seen it changed in that time? Oh, amazing difference really back in the 50s um I you was said ca- it was on its knees almost at one well, point well it was on its knees losing a lot of money uh very limited membership to clergy and retired military uh you know t- guys that had uh, retired from india and expected curry for every meal and stuff like that you know so and it was really difficult i mean i was a caddy boy here back in the 50s and uh, you were like persona non grata, you know. Really? You, yeah. No clubhouse, no. No, no. You were the professional. Wait on the benches not, outside. The professional was not even allowed in the clubhouse, and it was very, you know, tight that you you had to be hmm. one of these sort of people that, you know, could get in. But, yeah, it always moved. Now, to be honest, I think we're more of a workman's club now. But I think we've just moved with the times, perhaps better than others. Yeah, sure. I appreciate all this collar and tie stuff, and in the right place, it works. But, you know, we, we've relaxed it pretty much. Whether, whether we've dumbed down or, or just uh, go with the flow, really, because we're a seaside resort, you know, people expect to come, you know, casual and, and be okay with it. So, uh, yeah. But that's, the, that's part of the identity of it here, isn't it? I think that, again knowing a lot of people that have been here in the past have always said you know it's just a brilliantly laid back club you know if yeah. you want to kick your shoes and socks off and wear your flip yeah. flops outside and enjoy yeah. a drink and breathe yeah. in the sea air there's yeah. just there's no airs and graces no, and no. I think that's quite refreshing you know there's there's always a place for a collar and tie but yes, when you just is. force it into the situation I don't think it makes a place any better well, I don't know, really. I say... Uh, I'm not saying you'd introduce it at Muirfield, but the no, fact that no. well, the, the laid-back atmosphere is part of the club's it DNA, is, really. It is part of it, yeah. But up until the mid, mid-80s, late-80s, you know, we were a bit of a stuffy club, actually. Uh, really? Yeah, we had to really get a grip of what was happening, that people want to be user-friendly. You know, they want to come in jeans and they want to do this, do that. And, and, you know, we've had the slack back on dress code and stuff like that, you know, because of, of where we are. And, uh, well, back in the day, I mean, early 90s, we were losing 40, 50 grand a year. Really? So wow. we had to embrace... It's not sustainable. No. So we had to embrace, you know, everybody, really, for for the business model, if you like, mm-hmm. to work. And I'm, I'm business model, I use that loosely because we are a members club. But, I mean, when I started as the secretary in 1997, we were into the bank for about £80,000. We had the VAT money back from the members' um, subscription, <laughs> yeah, and suddenly we went into the into the black. But, yeah, we had pretty poor time, early 90s, lost a lot of money. 
40, 50 grand, and nobody recognised that, you know, you've got to get with the times and actually try to encourage all sorts of people just to get into golf, which, uh, you know, we've but managed... But it's busy now, isn't it? A hustling place. You know, we've got... Um, you know, this weekend alone feels like you know people I know in wider clubs and outside of, outside of Devon. This is very much a destination this weekend. This oh, this kind it, of it, this weekend, that bank holiday weekend for the Cashmere Cup and everything like that. Yeah, you know, it's almost like a pilgrimage these golfers are making. Yeah, um, oh, it's a magic week this week. Yeah, it, it's probably not um, the bar is not buzzing as it used to be back in the day because the Schoolmasters Cup there used to be an auction for players. No way, you, really? you actually bid for players if you thought they were on form and could go all the way but uh, a lot of country members there and the country members almost actually run the show but obviously they petered out and, and but this would stem from your club's original autumn meeting and then it's just sort of come forward and forward it is a yeah, bit more yeah. user friendly yeah. in august isn't yeah. it and always the, the the person who won the club silver meadow would be the captain for the following year and of course back in the uh, 70s early 1870s two boys won it and they were chairman of the club, so they, they, no way. they changed the rules. In the 1870s? Yeah. So they was that Hutchinson, I heard? Hutchinson was one, and Molesworth was another. <laughs> was it Arthur Molesworth? Yeah. They were boys, really, 16, 17-year-old. And the elders of the club obviously said, oh, no, we can't have this, we can't have this. So they Which dropped... Is pretty fair, to yeah, be honest. Yeah, it is, yeah. <laughs> so they dropped that uh, and created a president role, and the president was the top boy for a year. Right, okay. Because traditionally, I think, um, captains became captains because they were the top boy at golf, I think. Yeah, captaining aside, wasn't it? Always kind of... The role of club captain, I think, has evolved a lot into what is now almost more of a statesman-like role, I think, over time. Yeah, it definitely has, yeah. Yeah. So what can you tell me about the, the... sort of founding of of the club initially so just take me back i mean obviously we should add that you've you've obviously written the the, the beautiful club history here that must i mean i'm looking at it, it must have taken a lifetime to to pull all that together but the the club was founded in 1864 which is really with the exception of blackheath and somewhere like you say near manchester it really oh, is one manchester, of the first yeah, yeah first actual sort of golf clubs and and they went they went to Scotland and and, and wanted to get old Tom Morris down to yeah. come and lay out a rudimentary course did, is my yeah. understanding yeah I think there was a course already here of some to some degree but they thought they wanted to do, uh, sort of introduce a degree of uh, professional element in, into it if you like because we had double greens back in the day which is yeah, yeah of course it? yeah of course it's so the practical way of playing a, a links course yeah, out and back, yeah, you know, uh, yeah, with minimal uh, effort. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So yeah, eighteen. Where were we? Eighteen sixty-four would have been. That was the. That was the initial kind of. Yeah, effort the, from old the, time. when it was formed. Yeah, the club was formed in April eighteen sixty-four. Yeah. So just bring to life maybe how those first sort of few years. I don't know when you did your research for the book. What did those sort of first years look like in the club? You've had. A rudimentary course, then old Tom's come and done a visit, and there was... But I think it took him two visits, am I right? He came back a few years later and yeah, he did, he did. Yeah, in fact, he came a couple of times because he used to play... He played in a couple of um, competitions that the club uh, were hosting. Um, <coughs> 1864. Um, yeah, where are we? I've lost my way again. <coughs> I mean, to be honest, we copied a lot from Blackheath about the rules of the club and everything like that, because uh, Blackheath used to support us pretty well when we had uh, sort of open competitions. In fact, George Glennie won the first gold medal, I think. So, um, you know, he travelled all the way wow, from Blackheath yeah, yeah, by yeah. railway, obviously, back then. Um, so, yeah, the course has altered quite a bit since... 1864 to be honest and even now there's there's new holes and additions changing yeah, on there yeah. all the time like the seventh and they've got a new eighth there so yeah it has evolved really just with uh, the needs of the game i guess really yeah More i mean prior to that one the only real different the only real big change was in 1923 when the 14th was altered slightly um but that you know since then there's been nothing other than what we've done now at the seventh, you know, new seventh and new eighth. So, yeah, it's stood the test of time, really. 
because when Fowler redesigned the course in 1908, the yardage of the main course was similar to what the yellow tee is now. Is that right? Okay, yeah, wow. very similar. Yeah. So it would have been an absolute brute on a tough day, wouldn't oh, it? Oh, yeah. Back in those days. Oh, with Hickory and, and you know, <laughs> thirty mile hour window. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. That wouldn't boggles work, the would mind, it? doesn't it? <laughs> so Herbert Fowler did some revisions into nineteen oh eight. Then that's that's sort of. Well, I think it was because of the the. the the Haskell ball yeah yeah sure which was you know, pretty w- divisive at the time I think yes it was yeah. yeah I think that came in 1901 something like that and obviously the course was easy with this new ball Bounding Billy wasn't it was it Bounding <laughs> yeah. Billy depends on who you ask I don't, yeah, think, yeah. Yeah, I don't think I would have found it particularly easy still <laughs> no, but relatively speaking no. to, the, to the gutty percher no but because of that we had to lengthen the course and Fowler he w- I think it was at Walton Heath then. That's right. Yeah, so um, he, he, he designed Walton Heath. So he came here and, um, you know, redesigned the course a little bit. Well, quite a bit, actually. You know, seven or eight holes he altered. Some he left. Um, but some of the weaker holes he strengthened. I think that's that's fair comment on that mm-hmm. one. Yeah. There's, there's a couple of characters in the club's sort of history around, I suppose really around the turn of the century, which... Yeah, we've done a few podcasts recently with authors who've written books about the great English boom. You know, this whole concept. Oh, 1890s onwards. That sort of whole, you know, that sort of period of acceleration. John Ball Jr. wins the the, the, the Open as an amateur and all of that great stuff. And there's this huge acceleration in the game. And there's two figures that really seem to be at the absolute centre of it, I guess, Robbie. And that's... Horace Hutchinson and 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 J. H. Taylor, who yeah. are really significant figures in the in the club's history, right? Yeah, the, the two almost had a special relationship amongst themselves, didn't they? Yes, they did really. Um, yeah, J. H. Taylor. Okay, he, he was here in the beginning. He was a member of the artisans, and he did a bit of greenkeeping work. But I, I think he moved to Burnham pretty much when they were in formation like mm. and then he went to uh, obviously Winchester and, and um, I forget the other one now he went to was it Royal Mid Surrey yeah I think Royal Mid Surrey so he drifted away from us and then he came back to retire I think just before the second world war and he had a house at Wimble Lane so I didn't think uh Perhaps he had the association with the club that we claim, you know, it's, it's a little bit over the top, maybe, really. You think there's too much, maybe, baked into yeah, it's, it's Taylor we, and Yeah, it's Westwood good that Hope. this is his uh, home place and club, and, and he was a president in 1958, you know. Of Your year, wow. Yeah, yeah, 1958. Wow, did you meet I him? I was introduced to him, yeah. yeah. My father introduced him, but to me, he was just an old grandfather. Yeah, you know, yeah, I, I mean, imagine, I, yeah. I was 11, 11 year old, so yeah. Thought, he was you? quite, I mean, I we did some work recently around the... The Open Championship in 1922 at Royal St yeah. George's, and he made a late run at that, and he was quite old then. Yes, he was. In he, his, was yeah. he was right in the yeah. twilight of his career. He was really. So 1958, he must have been. I'm oh, guessing nudging 75, 80, no, something like that. He was. I think he was 80, 80 odd. Wow. Was, yeah, 80 odd. Yeah. But I shook his arm, but to me, I said it, it meant. I know he uh, now he's, he was a golfing superstar of the day. Yeah. But to me, he was just an old grandfather. And at the time, you've got these old boys around you saying, "No, this is an absolute legend." And yeah, you're sort of that's going, right. Yes, yeah. yes, I'm sure yeah, he is. Yeah, and we've yeah. all met those yeah, people, but course, you don't yeah. realise that. No, you don't actually. Yeah, he was. You know, no. part of the great triumvirate of he golfers. Was. Oh yeah, terrific. Yeah, he really was. So you think maybe there's quite a bit of stock? Obviously, he he originated from from Westwood Ho and and played his golf here, but moved on and came back. At later life does yeah. that mean maybe that conversely Horace Hutchinson is almost kind of much more of a critical figure in the club's evolution oh yeah Horace Hutchinson yeah I mean he, he I've seen ditto marks underneath yeah. his names on the honours board yes they, right oh they yeah they also got bored of yeah. inscribing yeah, it yes right yeah he, well he won everything here virtually yeah and um, yeah he was troubled solo wasn't he apparently how do you mean well, I thought, didn't he throw himself out a window or, or did he commit suicide or something? Or have I got that wrong? I may have got that. Well, you've totally caught wrong. me on the back foot because no, right. that's my job to know that. And I honestly no, right. don't know. I thought, I'd, well, he was pretty unwell come the end, I think. But he was, you know, really the 
I mean, he was a trailblazing golf writer of the day. Oh, he was. He, he really started, was. I think it, it was this badminton libraries or whatever they yeah. were called it yes, became it did, essentially yeah. the yeah. the dossiers that held all the information on clubs as they evolved yeah. it was yeah. a, he was an evocative writer he wrote a lot about golf courses he wrote a lot of books and this was really yeah. his this was his, this home, was club. his home club this is yeah. where he played yeah, this day is in it. day this was it yeah well he was one of the ones we said earlier that he won the club uh, silver medal when he was 17 I think <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. then they said oh we can't have this <laughs> <laughs> I heard they had a meeting in there or something while he was yeah. out on the course going <laughs> yeah. what do we do if this young Ooh, fellow wins I it? think he did did actually do it but they changed the rules shortly after <laughs> yeah. to make sure it didn't happen again <laughs> but it's yeah. great to have that connection with the past isn't it and I, I mean were there any other things in researching for your book and and in the process of putting that together where you thought god that's incredible bit of history because you must have a passion oh, for the it, subject yeah but there were several things which i come across and i think i never knew that amazing you know tell me about some of those wow, if you can recall i don't them. know it's, it's going to be difficult i mean george molesworth really uh i know gossett is um claimed to be the origin originator of the club or, or the founder member but i think molesworth had so much was to do with cloth so yeah, he was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Isaac Gossett. He was the vicar up in Northam, um, and he gets the uh, praise for all this. Um, you know, being the founder member of the club and making sure. But Molesworth was the boy actually that made it tick. Really? Yeah. The I mean, you Google, George, you, you Google George Molesworth. It's incredible what he did. In what way? Well, he, like he designed a sort of uh, handsome sort of a handsome car. Was it? I don't know. I've got it all. Handsome here, but. car. I say, you you Google him, and it, he's everywhere. What, had his hand in all sorts of industries? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He wanted to make another bridge over the over the um, River Torridge. He is really an incredible bloke, and he's got uh, much to do with the formation of the golf club and the driver of it. Really? Yeah, I, th- I think personally he had a lot to do with it, yeah. And the, and the, the clubhouse where we're sat now then, so my understanding is it's moved to its current site before it's way out into the i'm going to say the abyss because i don't really see what's beyond the golf course other than no it, 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 when marsh you get, and linksland so no, that was, was that pebble ridge out there it, yeah it is all pebble ridge out there when you get to the second green um that is a relative that was used to be the old 18th beyond that first of all they had a tent when it was a big uh, competition on, they had a tent. Then uh, they put up a tin hut that was washed away in about 1880. Then they relocated it back into the sand hills. Um, But then I think they thought, well, this isn't gonna last, so we need to, so they bought three fields and that's what kind of connects us fields, in here. This right. is three fields, Which yeah. takes us up to where, would you know, on the course? Well, from is that the, from the, the fence first green there, or from the fence, right? From the fence right up to the road. Okay. So that suddenly they had to create trustees because we uh, had property. Um, yeah, in 1888, we built the clubhouse. Wow. Which would still put this as an incredibly historic building. But it's yeah. not even your first, first clubhouse. No. No, it's well, after a tent, <laughs> yeah. two other clubhouses, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think there is. I mean, it didn't there's feel evergreen, did it? There's the tent. Look at that. It's incredible. 1870. Yeah. The red jacket's there. You just showed me a picture of some guys putting out there. That'll be the second green, which is now the. Well, the 18th green, that's 18th now the second green. Yeah. The red jacket's that, that sort of I think part that, of that original. I think that was a copy of Blackie. Do you think? Yeah, I think so, yeah. And there's the tin out. Oh, wow, yeah. 1874. And there's, there's the inside of it. It's we'll poor, try and get some of these pictures from, picture, from your archives and, and, and put them up on the website. It's a poor picture. Um, what can you tell me about the course then, Robbie? So, you know, you've played here now for north of 70 years. Yeah. Um, no, south. <laughs> south. I'm only south. 75. <laughs> 75. Sorry, you told me remembering you're five. That's why yeah, I was doing well, some yeah, bad Yeah, mass. it is about, yeah. No, yeah. I'll take that one on the chin. For you, most magical part of the course, where, where's that point where you still get the buzz today? Well, to be honest, I think we've lost the best, though, was the seventh, because it was a dog leg uh, to the left. 
but I get a buzz out of every owl because really? they're all different. They're yeah. all different, you know, and it, it, depending where the wind is, you know, like the fifth, which you'll see in a minute possibly, you can hit anything there from a wedge to probably a three iron. You know, wow. is, that, is that much difference? It depends on the wind, clearly. But yeah, and the the bunkering with the sleeper face that's that's, that's incredibly iconic. I want to say that's the fourth. fourth. It's the fourth. Right. Yeah. I'm glad yeah. I didn't totally butcher that. No, so, no. Um, that that's totally iconic, really, to 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 Ronald Devon. That in terms of that look, you just you see that and you know exactly where the picture is. Yeah. That's that's an original feature. That's something yeah. that's come well, in in Fowler's no, era. Back in the back in the day, it was the biggest bunker in the world. I mean, because no yeah. it was a previously a fully exposed sand waste area. Wasn't yes, it, it was. Yeah, I, I, got I mean, that would be something to reintroduce. Maybe like you should just get all the sand out now. Wow. Yeah, but I, maintenance, isn't it? True. You know, is um, I can't. I probably can't find it. Anyway. But back in the day, driving that with with hickory clubs and oh. You couldn't what is hundred fifty yard carry. Yeah, I mean yeah. it doesn't sound very much. <laughs> no, but not with Hickory in a you know, got a percha boy really wind again. You know, it would have yeah. been <laughs> <laughs> Fortunately most times the wind is behind. You know, it's a southwesterly. Yeah. So it would be helping you, but even so it's just if you play with Hickory in a <laughs> an old ball, you can't hit the thing nowhere, can you? And yeah. obviously the club's got raw patronage. I'm curious when, um, when, when, when did North Devon Golf Club become Royal North Devon Golf? Well, club? it was a North Devon and West of England golf club, and it only it was as we say formed in 1864. But in 1865 we got Royal patronage. Oh, and it, really? And it's early claimed then. that uh, it, it was the later. It was the Prince of Wales then in uh, 1865. And a pa- a seemingly he was a member of the club as well, which I find a little bit strange. Did you see any evidence of that in the archives all, and the history records? No. All I, all I saw was it was reported in the North Devon Journal, which is a local paper, that he'd uh, granted patronage and, uh, in fact, had become a member. So, so there's almost a chance here that... You guys are faking it as a Royal Club. Oh, mm, unlikely. Unlikely. <laughs> I'm just joking. Yeah, yeah. Well, you, you, well, who knows, you really? It's like a tr- it's <laughs> we, reported, had a, <laughs> we had a big fire in 1923. A lot of clubs had fires, didn't they? It's yeah, amazing and how many archives must have gone Yeah, in. and we lost a lot of stuff then. So we didn't have any proof other than this letter. For, I think the letter's dated 1901, where... When the Prince of Wales uh, succeeded the f- throne after prin- uh, Queen Victoria, um, he granted patronage again. Uh, it was okay. almost right, like a cool. repeat thing, you know? Yeah, yeah, sure. So, yeah. That's interesting, though, isn't it? So we would have been technically one year into the club's history. Yeah. I'm trying to think of anywhere, because Scotland would be the only place there could have been a royal club. And I'm not sure there would have been a royal, <laughs> no, probably royal not. club by then. I, I'm not sure if we're the oldest. It could make Gossett, you the old- apparently, was related to uh, Queen Victoria's surgeon. So there might have been a link there, but I, that's, really? that's difficult to trace, really. Yeah. And again, no, hard to track no, down no, any kind of no, empirical no, evidence around no, that. No. What was that? I'm curious, because that's... That book must have taken... Just talk to me about the process of well, just getting everything together before you can even start writing it. Yeah. When I was the secretary, I thought, well, somebody's going to need to write a 150th anniversary book in 2014. So I'll start collecting bits and bits and, you know, then pass it on to the boy. Not realising that it was going to be me. <laughs> holding the baton. It was going to be writing the book. So, it, you know, I would prepared for it then they asked me if I'd do it because I retired in 2010 and I almost started doing it then if I'll be honest with you you know but uh, yeah do you enjoy it, the process yeah come to divorce a little bit almost <laughs> divorce because <laughs> I spent so much time on it but it, it is what it is it's a labour of love though isn't it yes it is yeah and I wanted to do it right with pictures and, and we've we've got a hundredth anniversary book in a one two five anniversary book, but they don't yeah. do justice, really. Yeah. You know, I've gone a little bit deeper. If I nice, well, yeah, I mean, they're nice to see that it's it's nice to have those though still, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, of course it is. A yeah. continuum. Yeah, and you've got of course to think it is. That yeah, and I pinch some of it from them. Yeah. So you know, that's what's it plagiarism? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but you've got to think that maybe like what in 
what do we have? You know, it's going to be like 42 years' time. I'll tell you what, my mental arithmetic is shot after two pints of Guinness, by the way. 42 years. Uh, when, you, when you reach the 200th year anniversary. It would be... 2064. Yeah, it's going to be someone 20, that's, that's yeah, be 42 years, yeah. And I might say, oh, Foda got all this wrong. <laughs> <laughs> you might not be around to worry about well, it. Well, I don't think I'll be around to break it. It won't matter. <laughs> it won't matter. It really won't matter. <laughs> no, it won't matter. But I think, you know, that that process is quite important because it's easily forgotten, isn't it? Yes, you it know, is, actually. Yeah. Histories. yeah. It is, and as much as this is an okay book, even then I miss bits. I miss bits, but then I was constrained really by the size of the book. Mm. You know, so many pages because otherwise, as you said earlier, it becomes unreadable. You start to see them where they, you know, some club histories are quite thin, and yeah. some of them are brilliantly entertaining, and some yes. of them are really starchy things yeah. that actually it just becomes a yeah. almost a factual recantation yeah. of. What's I mean, happened. mine is pretty much fact. But I've dressed it up with a few pictures, so you know it makes it hopefully everybody who bought 500, who bought the 500 copies, enjoy it. They're in demand a little bit now because everybody wants to, get, you know. Yeah, keep yeah, of course. Well, I've just tried to get my hands on one, and I was no, told to, told to get stuffed. Basically. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm just yeah. joking. Um, <laughs> you've got the benefit of many years' wisdom playing these links. I'm a first timer here, as you know. Yeah. For any other first timers listening to this podcast, what advice would you give them? Not just about scoring well, but I would welcome that, by the way. But just in terms of enjoying your time down here, because I get the sense this course is a bit of a grower. It, it takes yeah. a few plays to grow on you, right? Yeah, I think what you've got to do is take it all in. You know, get here in plenty of time, look at the museum, look around the clubhouse. You know, look at the ro- locker room, you know, which is... Taylor's Locker's in there, Taylor's Locker, yeah, there's a few other uh, notables in there. Um, yeah, take it all in. The golf course, if you're playing all right, it'll, it'll serve you all right, yeah. But uh, take it all in. That would be my best uh, advice to everybody, you know. Have Spend a drink some time before in you there, go. look Have at the honours bef- board and, and, yeah. and soak Have it all in. Have a drink before you go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But it is, it is what it is, you know, I say, you, if you play well, you love it. If, if you don't play so well, you think, oh, no, I won't be back. But hopefully everybody does come back and give it a second chance, yeah. you know. Because it, from here, it looks pretty bland, doesn't it? Flat, uninteresting, a few ditches and, uh, here and there. But when you get out there into it, you realise that... Uh, but it's all going it, on on the ground, isn't it? You know, I like, yeah. you know, I've... You know, I always our listeners to this podcast will be bored of this, and I think we said before we start recording, we were talking about cookie jar. But one of the most exciting feelings in golf is when you get out of the car at a, at a at a club that you've never been to before, because it's a completely new sense, right? Sure, sure. So you yeah. see, you look yeah. around the clubhouse, the car park. Yeah. What's the first tee look like? Yeah. And I mean, I'll I'll be honest. I've seen more drama on the first tee before when I've sat there looking at a course. But you yeah. know, there's a lot more going on on the ground. You know that it's going to have all these little tricks and yeah, hidden things yeah, buried in there. That's links, and there's links all the history, golf, exactly. And I think, yeah. you know, so many ge- so many golfers these days are, are really quite, I think, guilty of being completely overawed by high dunescapes or, oh, yeah. you know, yeah. cavernous bunkers yeah. and seeing, yeah, possibly, you know, yeah. Yeah. This is raw golf. This is sustainable golf, right? Yeah. This is yeah. This is golf as it was invented. Um, I mean, to be honest, we almost had the Oatmere. Really? In uh, 1909. We lost the vote wow. by, I think it was seven votes to five. Uh, we lost it to Deal. But we, is that no, right? No, the vote took place in 1907. I think the Open, our bid was for the 1909 Open. And that, so the, the RNA voted 7-5 against. Yeah. So it was a yeah. close-run thing. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, likes of... Um, and you had, like, back then you had Deal, had Prince's and George's, because they had that whole spell, didn't they, where they were struggling with cancelled opens because of flooding over the sea walls yeah, and stuff. Yeah, that's right, so, yeah, yeah. Which, you know... But Deal, deal did They always get had it. a reserve contender. Yeah. And then Deal lost it because I think they were too short in the end, I think. But yeah, we, we made a bid for it. I think the criticism was there's not enough bed spaces here, and it's, it was common land. I think uh, Ball, 
Ball said there's not enough. Uh, John Ball. John Ball said there's not enough uh, bed spaces in North Devon to accommodate it, and I think because it's common land, we would have struggled to actually demand the entrance fee or something like that. But yeah, we did. To be fair, it was proposed by J. H. Taylor, who was a chairman of the PGA at the yeah. time. Well, we so talked about this. He did so much for professional golfers. Oh yeah, the, yeah, like he, like he's a like sneaky influential guy in golf. Yeah. I know he was a great player, but yeah, yes, he is. He's, he, his he hand did, is he did everywhere. A lot to almost, I mean, Stephen Proctor when he was on our podcast, I think, talked about the fact that people said to him in later life. You, change, you totally elevated the way professional golfers were viewed because they were very much seen as working men, second-class citizens at golf oh, clubs. Yeah. yeah, they you were. Know, almost yeah. untrustworthy characters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then Taylor had kind of broken that impression, played him you know, fantastically well, but also won everyone over. And he then set up the PGA, which really actually saved the the club professionals because yes, clubs back then did. were trying to buy yeah. the rights to manufacture right. and sell yeah, golf yeah. equipment yeah. and everything yeah. so and Taylor was still championing you know Royal North Devon then and saying yeah. this should be and Artisan Golf I mean he, he supported that pretty did much he? yeah Artisan Golf I think he was uh, influential in uh, setting up the Association of Golf no Association of Artisan Golf yeah, Clubs yeah, yeah. And, and, public, Temple, and, public, something. Is that and pu- yeah and public Oh, Parks was it? There's another organisation that's um, I can't remember what it is now. Yeah, but I mean, it, it is an interesting one. Just coming back to 1909, though, in that vote. I mean, you can't help but think, had the votes gone slightly differently and you'd had the Open Championship, the club that we enjoy today would almost be unrecognisable oh, to would. what would be here today. Yeah, it would have been. Yeah. We would, so have, we would have been suddenly, you know... Yeah, well, you, you're on the rotor. It's viewed differently. Does that mean then the course would go through another radical transformation in the 20s and 30s because it's part of that rotor that continues? Yeah, Does yeah. that then mean the, the visiting golfer wouldn't be able to enjoy better access to the club because all of a sudden it would be filled with, you know, maybe a, a different clientele paying a lot more money to come here and, and the whole thing changes and oh, yeah. what yeah. you've got here is brilliantly authentic to R&D and, and whatever 111 years ago would have happened if it did have the Open probably would be as well but there, there must be no getting away from the fact that two places would look totally different. Oh they would for sure yeah they would yeah yeah I mean as well uh, we, we, we've always had trouble with the graziers the local mm. graziers who've got permission to keep sheep the and horses and sheep, right, yeah. on, uh, you know, on the public land, really. And we've always been at odds with them. All through the years, I mean, one particular chap, he dug up the fifth green in, in a fit of peak. Um, because Just took it upon himself? Yeah, he, and he dug it up. I mean, he, he, I think he got fined in the end. He did go to court and get fined. But we've always had this sort of contentious issue that we're doing wrong out here because we're cutting the grass and we're doing this and doing that whereas the sheep should be eating the grass and not not golfers mucking it up almost you know so we've had we've had a lot of trouble with the grazers down the years but now that's all gone away because the old grazers have died and there are not many sheep out here and i think that was because of uh foot and mouth you know people I think moved away from sheep farming so you know sheep out there now are sparse but you could have 1200 sheep and 100 horses at any one time oh, and 1200 sheep plus their followers their followers which is the lambs so it is I mean I can remember as a boy there were cows donkeys geese who's more packed sheep, with, with wildlife horses. back then yeah but they're still <laughs> but out there right it, it was everywhere you know, it was absolutely everywhere. Donkeys, I say, donkeys, horses, sheep. We talked geese. about there some of the greenkeeping. Certainly, some of the four-legged greenkeepers that you guys have. I've been fortunate to meet a couple of the green green staff at yeah. Royal North Devon. Yeah. Uh, Christy, yeah, obviously, yeah. I met at yeah, uh, Christy, yeah, yeah. down at RNGC actually for for Dan's par three tournament. All right, yeah, the great guy. Yeah, I yeah. played him in the semi-final actually. Played All out right, his skin, yeah, yeah. which is surprising considering the sheer amount of alcohol he drunk. Um, <laughs> <laughs> credit That's to him. It. <laughs> great bloke and yeah. Ollie. Ollie. Ollie played there, on there Tuesday. In what was the event on Tuesday? Is that like the... No, that's Wednesday, wasn't it? Was it wasn't Wednesday? Wednesday, the Caldwell Cup, or, <coughs> or was it the... She got 66. I know. 
and apparently Mr. Short put on 17. Been out at cutting the grass. I know, yeah. Working incredible. on the, yeah. working on the greens. Went out, shot 66. Yeah, incredible. Same again today. Apparently he's playing. He's gone out, done the greens. Yeah. He's playing this morning, and yeah, he's got the final he, of the club championship. Now, yeah. There he yeah. is, in fact. Yeah. Or um, well, to be honest, uh, I mean, the greenkeepers have it tough because of the animals. Yeah, and because it's common man, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. you've got to work around them. Yeah, you have. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, it's not a great, easy job. But no, they do it. They do it very well, actually, because the course is in good condition. Despite the drought we've had, this bit of rain has helped mine. This bit of rain has really done well. Well, Robbie, I must say uh, a big thank you for having us uh, down this weekend. It's a real, it's a real treat. I can't wait to sample in it. Um, oh, it's a pleasure to talk to you, my son. Um, yeah, hopefully you will enjoy. Well, I've absolutely you, no you're doubt low that handicap? I will. You low handicap? Well, I'm not a good golfer. Aren't you? I'm off three, but I, I, oh, I, three. I don't expect. I, 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 I don't expect to be threatening the, the scoreboard. No, but, uh, well, it's unknown, isn't it? But I'm sure you'd be fine. Yeah, I mean, it's almost one of those. It's kind of like the first at St Andrews. There's almost too much, too much width off the first tee <laughs> that it actually makes it deceptively <laughs> narrow. <laughs> yeah. Is there any truth in that? Well, yeah, it, but it's not so, is it? I mean, it's wide open, really. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if we if we had well, back when I was secondary, we did still aspire to have the open. But to be honest, they'd rip it to pieces now. Yeah, they'd rip yeah, it yeah. to pieces. So. You know, let it go. It's done. <laughs> They're playing a different game. Robbie, yeah. you've been a great podcast guest, and uh, thank you again. Okay, thank you. All the best. Watch this.